Welcome to the Cood Street Podcast. This week's episode goes out to Sleepless in Wagga. We're doing our best to be as uninteresting as possible. We'll use the word at be- beige at random intervals. This is the Cood Street Podcast. Okay, Jonathan, that was just weird. That was, that was just odd. That was just completely... I can redo what? that if you want, Gary, but I'll tell you. No, that's entirely fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Open the pod bay door, please. Don't you know who Sleepless in Wagga is? Yes, I want to know what you're talking about. Sleepless in Wagga is our friend Margot Margo Lanigan. Ah. She was complaining on Twitter about how we failed her, Gary. Bitterly failed. Oh. And I hate failing Margot because I think she's really sweet and lovely. Margot is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and we're failing her because she was listening to us uh, one evening when she was sleepless in Wagga and needed to get to sleep. And we were too interesting, Gary. We could fix that easily. We could take care of that in a minute. <laughs> yes. And now a brief discuss- discussion of the collected works of John Norman. Yes, followed a, by... A, a, a G-rated discussion. A, 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 yeah, Absolutely. All of John Norman, and then we're going to talk about the complete biography of John Carter <laughs> as it might have been reimagined by L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, fantastic. That would be, I think be great. I think if L. Ron Hubbard had invented John Carter, <laughs> I, don't know the, I don't know the end of that sentence. But. <laughs> it takes a certain kind of sort of sick mind, Gary, to come up with that. Well, Writers do invent, they do reinvent other writers' creations to some extent. And the closest example I can think of, now that I've gotten yeah. myself into trouble with John Carter, <laughs> is that to some extent, Michael Chabon did do his version of John Carter in the screenplay for the movie John Carter, which, as I say, is a mantra every time it comes up, isn't as bad as everybody thought. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't think it was that bad. I liked it. That was fun. It was I fun. enjoyed it. It was fun. I mean... Uh, it wasn't the film that I'd expected. It wasn't the film that it, it wasn't uh, Mars or Barsoom as I envisaged it. And there was, and I'm not sure that you could have made that anyway. I mean, if you go back and reread the book, in all of its you know stunning sort of early 20th century glory, uh, it just I don't know that it would play out logically on the screen. There's one moment, I think, where Carter is fighting the Warhoon, if I recall correctly. And suddenly mm-hmm. you get that, that image that is stuck in my mind of him sort of fighting back to back with Tars Tarkas. And there's like an entire mound of corpses of their enemies around them, right? Which, of course, is on one hand, mm-hmm. is completely appalling, but makes for great pulp fiction. That's it, you know? That, that's what I, what I would have envisaged. I think one of the things that makes pulp, pulp fiction work like like that work on the page, and the same thing's true with, with with Robert E. Howard's Conan stories, is that yes, you have piles and piles of corpses, and and uh, but none of that stuff is meant to be visualized literally on the screen. Yeah. Uh, the screen is screen. Movies tend to be a representation of reality. You tend to believe what you see, or you believe that there's some reasonable facsimile of what you're seeing out there. And in fiction, Burroughs and Howard were both. Writing the way teenage boys think, which is, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Uh, but they weren't actually thinking about, I think, visualizing this thing. Burroughs, I think, was involved in maybe one Tarzan movie earlier or something like that. But not uh, not the John Carter thing. I don't know if Burroughs ever thought that John Carter could have been made into a movie. Who knows? Uh, but or I mean, that it was a good idea. 
but but I mean you're right on one hand because I mean after all what what is the uh, John, you know the John Court Carter storyline, but mm. naked ladies and sword fighting. Well, exactly. I think and and the the scenario of Mars and I I I did not object to the portrayal of Mars in the John Carter movie mm. because it seemed clear to me from A Princess of Mars from Burroughs' original book that. Mars was another version of the southwestern desert. Yeah. Mars was basically Arizona, and that's mm-hmm. where John Carter comes from, and he ends up in some place very... But it, it's an Arizona in which, instead of simply being a Civil War veteran and a cowboy, you can be a superhero. Uh, so that it's, it's, it's pulpish thinking, but it's not, uh, it's not unreasonable for somebody of that era to be, to, to be doing that sort of thing. No. I just don't think, that, I don't think that novels like that... Now, this is 1912 for A Princess of Mars were written with any kind of idea uh, that they could be literalized in film. Oh, Lord, I no. I think a lot, no. a lot of Pulp Fiction was just fun. It's fun to read. It's fun to think about this on your own. Well, I mean, also, I mean, don't forget that you know, in 1912, there was almost no film industry to speak of. You know, there was oh, no well, film industry to speak of. Well, there was a film industry to speak of, and I, I can speak to that authoritatively. Having watched just last week a film that was made in... 1913, called Traffic in Souls, which was, believe it or not, a very yeah. persuasive and powerful film about um, sex trafficking oh, okay. about oh. uh, among immigrant uh, girls in New York in, in, in 1913. And it was a very well-made film, but it was made in New Jersey and, and suburban New York, which is where the American film industry yeah. was located at that point. Uh, but... The idea of doing special effects films, other than what Melier had done, the idea of doing a film that was anything like uh, a Princess of Mars, mm. you're right. That was not that was not into their that was not in their um, imagination. I don't think. I don't know what I'm talking about here, do no. I? Well, no. But okay. this is the we don't know what we're talking about episode where, having run out mm. of any possible idea, to, we threw ourselves on the mercy of the court. We tweeted minutes before starting recording yes. this episode and said to our dear assembled multitude, right? We said, tell us what you'd like us to talk about. And Guy Gavriel K of Toronto writes in and says, talk about single malt whiskey. Guy needs to be on the podcast in order to do that because I at the moment am drinking Pinot Noir, as I always do during the podcast. Yes, and I know nothing about single malt whiskey compared to what Guy knows or what most of my friends know. So the solution, I can tell a really good single malt whiskey when you give it to me. So then the solution uh, surely is, uh, Guy, you know, Guy, is that we will we will see you maybe in Washington. Mm-hmm. Oh, not likely, maybe. And we will sample single malt and we will re-record a podcast there. And then we will be able to discuss single malt. Then we'll do single malt whiskey. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for the suggestion, Guy. Moving right along. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> Fred Keish, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Fred Keish, longtime friend of this parish, writes in several times. And he starts by asking, Clifford Simak, Cordwainer Smith, Fritz Leiber, are they forgotten? Excellent question, Fred. Um, and, we'll, and we could add a lot of names to that list. Um, I, I did, <clears throat> ad, admitting my, my um, uh, failure of loyalty to this podcast, I did record a podcast with Karen Burnham and Karen Lord about Cord Rainer Smith a couple of weeks ago, yep. uh, which meant I had to reread some things. I don't think Cord Rainer Smith is forgotten at all. I think every, because everybody who reads Cord Rainer Smith proselytizes. Um, the, the, the wonderful Nesfa volume of 
Cord Wainer Smith, I assume, is still available. Of the list that he mentioned, and, and you and Charles Brown did a wonderful selected stories of Fritz Leiber not long ago. I put Fritz Leiber in my Library of America thing. The name on that list that jumps out at me is Clifford Simak. And I would love to find, and we could do a, a probably most of a podcast on Clifford Simak. What I would like to do is find somebody who is a champion of Simak, because I think he is more in danger of being forgotten by far than either Cordwain or Smith or Fritz Leiber. Well, let's ask ourselves why. I think one of the reasons, first of all, that he's likely to be, well, he falls into the likely to be forgotten category, mm-hmm. is that he was really very prolific <clears throat> and wrote, oh. I hate to say, an awfully large amount of mediocre material. Right? I don't think that... Uh, okay, you don't my, agree, my do argument, you? You don't want to agree I with don't agree. Well, that, that, It doesn't make any difference if I agree. Okay. Um, it doesn't make any difference if I agree because at the time of his career, you're right, he was grinding out a lot of stuff. He wrote a few more novels than he should have your luck. But any reader who has begun reading in science fiction within the last probably 40 years we'll only see the highlights. We'll see the things that have remained in print. They'll see the big front yard. They'll see desertion. They'll see city. uh, They'll see waste station. In other words, you may be right that while he was alive, he wrote too much. But the heritage, the the major works that are still available in in various places like the Science Fiction Hall of Fame Mm -hmm. or SF Gateway, I presume, are are fairly substantial works. And they're works that do things... um, in a way that weren't done again really until people like Robert Charles Wilson came along. That's true. I mean, certainly. There's no denying that the kind of rural, humane, low-tech science fiction that he wrote, very character-centric, had an enormous impact on the field. In some ways, I I question whether a John Scalzi would work quite the same way that he does Mm -hmm. without Simic having been on the field. Wilson is, is a great example. I think he seems to influence Robert Reed in some ways. I can you know, I can mm-hmm. see that sort of around the field. Uh, but you know, do you see people likely to read Special Deliverance or Shakespeare's Planet or Enchanted P- Pilgrimage? These aren't the works. And one of the things that's actually unfortunate is that, to my knowledge at least, even though there must have been twenty five collections of short stories done, mm-hmm. I don't know that a single one of them's in print. I don't know there's well, a single best of Clifford Simak in the world. Um, maybe there was one. I know there was. There's been a couple of. There's been two or three done over the years. I think Ballantyne did one during that series a long time ago. He, well, uh-huh. uh, Berkeley did one in the 70s, around the, the, you know, the mid 70s, which uh-huh. brought together a lot of his best short fiction. You know, The Big Front Yard, Skirmish, those stories yeah. that you're talking about, Desertion. Uh, and I know that uh, our friend Jacob Weisman did one uh, uh-huh. over the over the river and through the woods, which he may still have copies of. I don't know. I don't recall off the top of my head what was in that book. Uh, I think maybe it sort of overlapped and had had his like his last really strong short story, which was Grotto of the Dancing Bear, which you might recall. It was an excellent story. It yeah. was one of the better stories of its kind I've read. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in terms of books, novels, I mean, you really are talking about city. Which, yeah. you know, surprises me that it, he, he started writing it as early as he did because it was, he started, that, that came out during the Second World War. Uh, City did. Well, the first the, stories. The, the short stories did. The, yeah. the book was a 50s book because one of the things, again, uh, and I, I keep feeling guilty to make excuses for things that nobody has ever asked me to make excuses for. City was one of the, I thought, 
in some ways a seminal book of the 50s as a book, mm. but it was all 1940s short stories. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and and of them, I, I mean, I still think that desertion, I still see versions of desertion being written today. Yeah. Where you discover it in the alien environment that that, that and and if if you if you apart if you if you separate the um, space exploration theme from the environmental theme in this and and, mm-hmm. and Simak touched upon environmental themes more than a lot of people did in the forties, then you have not a story about <clears throat> excuse me, the basic plot of the story is people keep going to Jupiter and disappearing and nobody knows what happens to them. Yeah. And it turns out that because you're turned into this Jovian creature and you're completely in sync with your environment. Yeah. So in a way, the story works very well as a story about being congruent with your environment, working, mm-hmm. being, being a creature that exists comfortably in, in, in that kind of environment. Now, in a way, that has shown up again and again and again, even in writers like Paolo Bacigalupi. Yep. Yep. Um, and I think that one of the problems with that story is simply that um, it doesn't lead anywhere. In other words, I think any number of people have read Desertion because it's in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame who haven't gone on to read City. And City has some fairly powerful notions in it about um, about the future. I mean, it's the title is, first of all, one of the first and most ironic titles in science fiction because the very beginning of that novel, the first story in it, whose title I don't remember at the moment, is explains to us that cities don't really exist anymore. Yeah. We don't need them. Yeah. Um, and then eventually humanity is ab- abandons the planet. The planet's given over to intelligent dog- dogs. I mean, if somebody were to take that same set of concepts yeah. today, uh, transforming yourself into an alien to go to Jupiter, uh, leaving the planet to the dogs, dogs becoming more intelligent, all the kind of stuff that goes into this, it still sounds innovative to me. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the idea of dogs taking over the planet is something that, to be honest, Margaret Atwood, Atwood could have been proud of. Yeah. It's, it's all very mundane. So, so that's uh, something that I, I, I think is, is sad that people are not following up on that. Um, stylistically, um, he was, as you say, a very humane writer, fairly transparent writer. I yes. don't know if there are soaring passages of prose you'd find for him. Uh, but uh, it's it's hard to say. But Way Station, I still think, is is one of the archetypal plots in science fiction. Oh, without a doubt, it's a, sens- I think- it's, it's, it's a secret master kind of plot. Here's an unknown farmer in Minnesota, who on whose back the entire future of the galaxy rests <laughs> in some way. It's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, well, I guess that's it. I mean, he is one of the one of the well, first one of the rare, you know, pa- pastoral writers in the history of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of those people who's written two completely seminal books. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, to, to me, I mean, Waystation was it was a fundamental science fiction book when I was growing up. That whole idea so. of th- this character in this isolated sort of rural setting who was such a incredibly important character, and the, and the whole con- you know concern with nuclear warfare and all that kind of thing. It was very timely when I was growing up. Amazing book. And yet, you know, I don't know who would be, you know, I don't know if it's as regularly read as it could be. Our good friend Mike Walsh, who we talk about every now and again on the podcast, mm-hmm. he published a very handsome edition of the book several years ago to bring it back into print. Mm-hmm. So it's not out of print, but I don't think it's widely read at all. 
Now, why? Maybe, maybe because it's low because low tech stuff isn't as immediately sexy. Maybe bad luck. Though I suspect, I mean, it's my suspicion that PlayStation and um, City will stay in print pretty much indefinitely. I don't know from there. You know, I'm I not sure. I mean. I think the Grotto of the Dancing Bear is a classic story. I think it's a beautiful way of handling that particular theme. Mm. Um, um, and it probably ought to be recognized. I think one of the problems, and I've, I've you know, Simak died, I think, I would like to say he died before I was born, but he died before I was 40, yeah. which is close enough. And my, everything that I heard about him from people who knew him was that mm -hmm. he was astonishingly modest, not self-promoting. He lived in... A remote area and sent in his stories had very good relationships with everybody yep. professional but never developed yep. and never developed a kind of um i gather the kind of convention legendary reputation that somebody um might have developed so he's, he's not a legend in science fiction he's not somebody you hear anecdotes about like asimov and heinlein and his fiction is very quiet by and large it's uh, conceptually smart as i say the the current writer who most probably resembles him, I think, is Robert Charles Wilson. Um, and I think that Simex, the things like Waystation are novels that lead in an almost direct line to novels like Spin. Yeah. Um, but that's a, but, you know, Robert Charles Wilson is not a characteristic science fiction writer today either. No, he's not. And, and um, neither of them have those kind of things which immediately, that immediately pop out to people. As, you know, you're not, you're not going to make City into a movie, are you? No. Or Waystation. You could probably make Waystation into a very good TV series, though. Yeah, you could, actually. Uh, and the idea that he's... Um, I, I think one of the things he did, you mentioned the pastoralists, and uh, the other people who are sometimes cited as pastoral pastoralists in science fiction are Sturgeon, who sometimes had people in remote rural areas, uh, as in, for example, more than human, and obviously Bradbury. Yeah. Um, but what Simak was doing was a kind of combination of galaxy-spanning hard SF with the local guy sitting on his porch in Minnesota. Whereas Sturgeon often focused on psychic powers. Of the, 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 the key thing of more than human is that, okay, this has to do with biology, it has to do with psychology, it has to do with joining a kind of overmind. Uh, <clears throat> Bradbury never really worried about making any of his pastoral settings science fictionally significant and i think simak linked those two worlds i think yeah. he linked the world of space opera with the world of midwestern rural pastoralism in a way that nobody else has and i found it very appealing maybe because i grew up in the midwest yeah uh but these the characters in simak were uh you know believable decent down-to-earth characters any of them could have been played by tom hanks um <laughs> <laughs> You say that like, like like it's not not actually sort of a good thing. Um, well, Jimmy Stewart. Okay, during during Simak's lifetime, it would have been Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. But but that's, yeah, I think that's uh, Fred. Fred, I thank you for calling attention to that. And what I think Simak needs, and what I think a lot of less well remembered writers need, are a champion. Yeah. <laughs> they need somebody today. Uh, we've talked about this before. Um, we may talk about it later. That uh, that that Neil Gaiman has expressed his admiration for R.A. Lafferty, who we also both admire. Yeah. Uh, whether that makes a difference or not. 
Well, um, I'm now going to actually interject briefly and put, put out to everybody something which is a cliche on our podcast, even though I didn't know, know it. We often talk about the good work done by our friends at the SF Gateway. Yes. Uh, who I feel are now having been in touch with Darren Nash, who's one of the editors there, or is the editor there, digital editor. Mm-hmm. Should point out, do publish new material as well, Gary, not just things that came out you know, before most of us were born. Uh, are about to publish a large print omnibus of Clifford DC Max. Well, they are. Uh, Excellent. Combining time is the simplest thing, way station, and a choice of gods. So, okay, go. that's a good sign. But actually, in print, in a bookstore. Oh, actually, you said, okay, you, you did say a large print edition, by which you meant a large edition, which is in print, not people for have people who have vision problems. No, no, not a large. Sorry, not a large print book. No, for the visually impaired. No, Gary. A, no. a a 500 page book that will have you know dots of ink on bits of paper in a store uh-huh excellent i think that that may make a difference if people pay attention to it well i think uh, some people talking about it maybe we need to get a celebrity book club up no we're not going to do that uh and talk about cliff Simic. but anyway we should, right. th- we should we should think about getting writers like that we talked about paul Proust a couple of weeks ago sure. and I, um Go ahead. I was going to say, the thing that occurs to me about the difference between Simak, Smith, and Liber, Smith is, he has a kind of cult appeal, I guess. You know, a real passionate mm-hmm. sm- small group appeal. Liber has a classic series. He is Fafford the Grey Mouser. So he'll never be forgotten because of Fafford the, uh, Fafford the Grey Mouser. Mm. Even though he may not get the kind of broad attention that we feel he should because of the incredible influence he had has had on the field nonetheless he won't be forgotten. Yeah. so but simak has no equivalent mm-hmm. you know uh simak is somebody who is kept in print and remembered because you know he act, he won the hugo and the nebula because these books are on those that list you know i wonder mm-hmm. if he wasn't on that list whether he would be as as remembered so it's, anyway. an, it's an interesting question because he's not part of what you consider the mainstream, I guess, of, of received science fiction history. The science fiction history, even though he did sell to Astounding, he was not a Campbell writer. He was, he was very much an individual voice at that time. And, mm-hmm. and so he, it, it, it's in order to understand modern hard SF, no, you probably don't need to read Clifford Simak. Yeah. Uh, in order to understand modern sword and sorcery, you probably do have to read Fritz Leiber. Yes. So much of what goes on is derivative of that, yeah, or inspired from them. Michael Swanwick to Garth Nix are yes. all aware of, of Fritz Leiber. Um, and, and also, I mean, the people actually writing course, you know, sort of swords and sorcery, whether it be Saladin Ahmed or Howard Jones or mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Erickson or Joe Abercrombie or, or you know the people who are sort of known very widely. So anyway, great question. Well, not only that, but Fritz, Fritz Leiber wrote. Uh, we should point this out also because, and and we're going to get some at some sooner or later we're going to get Robert E. Howard people mad at us and they're really powerful people and they have you know big swords big and cars and, things. and, yeah, they, and they don't fear the, they do not fear the lamentation of the women. But what Fritz Leiber did that Robert E. Howard didn't write was write a layered, sophisticated, ironic version of sword and sorcery, which has barely been improved upon by anybody. Yeah. That's I mean, true. He's well, the only he's the only sword and sorcery writer who could get Joanna Russ as a fan, for heaven's sake. And Samuel Delaney. Uh, part, and Samuel Delaney. Look, p- 
partly it's because he was a terrific line-by-line -line writer as well. He was a spectacularly good writer, a gifted writer, and that's why. Fred Kish, also of this par parish, wrote several more times. And some, uh -huh. some of which you might sk skip over. He suggests Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a topic. To which I say, I've watched it. It hasn't been that good, but yeah, there you go. I watched one episode of it, and my thought was, it's not that good, but it's what I thought it was going to be. Uh, episode four, which as far as I watched, seemed to find a format for it. You know, it's really a spy mm -hmm. show, not a superhero show. And when it's being a spy show, that's fine. I think the same thing is pointed out on io9.com this week as well. Uh, he also suggests we could talk about Jeff Vandermeer's Wonder Book, which I've not read, but you've just reviewed for a certain magazine, Locus, www.locusmag.com. Uh -huh. Please subscribe. Yep. That's an interesting topic to bring up because I was just uh, – and. Um, Going through it again, it's not really a book you read. It's it's well, it is. Um, there is a Jeff Vandermeer book on on the techniques of writing fiction, from characterization to world building to um, you know, dialogue and so forth and so on. And Jeff writes a continuing handbook throughout that. That's not really what Wonder Book is. Wonder Book is this lush Abrams art book mm -hmm. with one, every page has illustrations on it. It's a gorgeous book to look at. And there are pieces in it um, on various issues that I think even non-writers, and I'm not an aspiring writer. I am one of the few people that actually aspire not to be a writer. <clears throat> but I still found Kim Stanley Robinson's essay on exposition fascinating. Mm -hmm. Because as we've talked, even on this podcast with Stan, he believes in the info dump. He believes yeah. the info dump is a demeaning term for a kind of exposition which is very useful in science fiction. Uh, there's There are pieces in it by Kat Valenti. There's a very good piece in it by um, Nick Mamatas about a point of view. Mm -hmm. So what I think is interesting about the book, um, whether or not it teaches you how to write fiction, I don't know if it does that, but it certainly is a, a view of a lot of interesting, very bright people thinking about their craft and thinking about their art in interesting ways and in ways that are geared toward the fantastic genres, as opposed to, for example, um, um, most writing manuals, most how-to-write manuals, basically are trying to tell you how to sell to the Atlantic Monthly, even though the Atlantic Monthly hasn't published fiction in 50 years. That's the way the manuals are written. Um, but what I liked about Jeff's book is that even though he's talking about fantasy and science fiction, he has a chapter on world building, which most of the traditional mainstream manuals wouldn't have. He also talks about how important it is to learn to structure a story from from Nabokov or yeah. from Henry James or from somebody else. So it's uh, I think I found it fascinating. I found it just a, a lot of fun to play around in, um, even though I'm not going to write fiction, don't want to write fiction, I think I still like to hear people talk about their craft. Okay. And I think I'm not the only one. How many people show up at these Worldcon conventions and World Fantasy Con panels on things like point of view and structure and world building and uh, uh, characterization who aren't really writers themselves, but they want to find out how writers think about these things. And oh. that's what Wonderbook to me feels like. I, thought, I, I think it's a lot of fun. And one, an ideal purchase for Christmas, Gary. It would be a great purchase for Christmas. Of course, you know, if you have somebody who's a failed writer, it could be a really cruel purchase for Christmas. <laughs> but. Well, maybe you should give give them Wonder Book and a bottle of the single malt scotch that Guy Gavriel K. That's was a good idea. Now, now we're putting together Christmas packages <laughs> for the failed. 
That's an excellent plan. What, the perfect gift for the failed writer in your family? Oh, yes. Gary, no. Let's move on to the next topic. Mm-hmm. I think it's time. This one, this one, I have to think about myself a bit. Michael D. Thomas of, obviously, this podcast, who's not, I don't think he's written in before. Hello, M- Michael. Uh, who is the managing editor at Apex magazine. Uh-huh. And who has uh, edited Glitter and Mayhem and Queers Dig Time Lords. Which means he almost certainly has a uh, Hugo or two at home. I know his wife mm-hmm. Lynn does. And he writes in with the excellent question, uh, if I can get that out of the way, is how, crowd, how has crowdfunding changed the anthology market? Um, that's a fascinating question. And since you're an anthologist, I should let you take out that first. I would say that we are, well, I was going to say we're in the early stages of seeing how it's going to affect the anthology market. I can uh. see it having a significant effect, and it's come at a particular time in the evolution of the market. The anthology market, like any business market, I guess, has waxes and wanes. And we had a real yeah. uh, boom through the late 2010, you know, 2000s. From 2005 through 2010, the anthology market boomed. It seemed that major theme anthologies always sold very well. Uh, my friend John Joseph Adams did particularly well with um, The Living Dead and with Wastelands. Uh, there were any number of other books that did. There was a growing number of them coming out from a, a fairly coherent group of publishers. There was so, a significant degree of faith from major publishers in investing in those books. However, that has begun to wane major publishers are much less interested, much more cautious about investing in anthologies. Uh-huh. You'll find that what were once the real high-end, uh, enormous blockbuster books are now mid-list books that do pretty well. I mean, I think that uh, the obvious example is the sequence of books that uh, Gardner Dozois has been co-editing with George Martin, like, like Dangerous right. Women, like Warriors, all those mm-hmm. books, Old Mars, which has just come out. And... The books which might have placed, you know, like, say, my book that I did with Gardner, The New Space Opera, that came out in 2007 from HarperCollins, would now probably be a middle press or independent press book. Uh Because I think HarperCollins would be much more cautious. And in England, of course, they're almost completely uh, unwilling to take a chance on on things. Yeah. Uh, The... So what you've got is you've got this trough in the market. Books are harder to place right now, which is fine. That happens and it'll change in future. But there's an incredible, there's a growth in anthologies being published. And what, what it's done is, is basically you've got a group of people who come up with an anthology idea, put together an engaging pitch on Kickstarter, and then roll it out to the world at large. And there's nothing wrong with that. And some of the books that have come out of it have been been very good uh, but there's also an element of the roger elwood about it you know it seems right now it feels like every time you turn around uh-huh. there's another anthology coming out uh if i were given my druthers i would rather well i would most i'd be happiest seeing kickstarter kind of funding used to fund I guess what I would call adventurous niche projects, ones that were really sort of uh-huh. substantial and interesting, but ones that might not catch a globe, a large, really broad audience. Instead, what you're, you're seeing more often than not 
is books that are much more like the kind of thing that techno books were, pub were publishing. You know, you're more likely to see Castle Fantastic or something are coming yeah. out via Kickstarter. Now, they don't have to be that, and they're not uniformly like that. And even sort of some of the ones that I think are, weren't my favorites of, of this year, say, uh, still had some good work in them, you know. So there's always something interesting. And I, I've got to say, you've got to applaud the fact that there's good work being published. Mm -hmm. But I've got, I'm not entirely comfortable with it. I'm, I'll be interested to see what happens with um, the book that Ellen Datlow has done that's kickstarted. I, th I would uh -huh. say that's probably off the top of my head, the, mo the highest profile kickstarted anthology that I can think of. And I think she raised about $28,000 to do this uh, horror anthology that she's doing. Fearful Symmetry. And I, yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that happens, and we begin to learn after a while what editors mean. And by the way, if, if you, Jonathan, or our listeners are hearing an interesting variety of horns and sirens outside my window, um, it's, 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 it's just stopped. I guess the zombies won. <laughs> oh, well. Okay. well done. Whatever. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I guess my sense is that uh, Kickstarter begins to um, teach you what I think editors are for. I think the reason Ellen was very successful in her Kickstarter is because she's Ellen Dadlow, and people know that a good book will come out of it. Um, I think that uh, if you want to do a Kickstarter, J.J., if I'm not mistaken, J.J. Adams is doing a Kickstarter about Kickstarters. Uh, stories no, about no. Well, yeah, maybe, yes. He's, he's doing a couple of sort of sort of interesting recursive kind of kickstarter uh, ones because mm. he's also got the uh, he's doing the robot army one yeah that's what i'm thinking of uh which you know was it please support my robot army or something which i don't know i'll be interested to see how that but the thing works. is you ellen jonathan i mean gardner any number of people we could name paula garan um there's a sense in which uh an editor's name will sell books I guess my sense with Kickstarter is that all an anthology really needs, whether it's by a recognized editor or not, is enough subscribers to produce enough copies of the book for those subscribers. In other words, does a Kickstarter book necessarily mean the book is going to survive in the marketplace? Or is it, it only going to survive among its subscribers? Oh, not at all. It doesn't even guarantee it's going to get into the marketplace at all. Into the marketplace at all, yeah. Um... <clears throat> Uh, in fact, I've seen several Kickstarters that are basically structured ar around not pushing a print book out to anybody, but just mm -hmm. delivering a product to the people who have pre-funded. And if you look at the way the, say, the Datlow one was structured, you know, I think they pr what they did was they effectively pre-sold 650 copies plus some other stuff for yeah. 28 grand. Um, I look at, you know, sort of, say the book that you refer to help fund my robot army and other improbable mm. kickstarters which is kind of a clever novel idea um i you know the, a lot of this comes down to you like you you get the ebook and you're kind of going all right fair enough but they're not actually pushing them out beyond immediately i'm sure john will do everything he can to promote it and he's very skilled at that um right they're not immediately pushing out to a broader audience and if we get into the subtleties of this as we maybe now are at last, rather than me mm. just sort of sitting there going, I'm not sure about this. Uh, hopefully you have a skilled editor involved at the, at the heart of it. And any number of them do. Obviously this robot army book mm. of John's does. I mean, John's involved. He's, he's very skilled. Uh, when the Thomases did uh, Glitter and Mayhem, they, they definitely know what they're doing. Yep. 
but you don't necessarily have the resources for copy editing, though you may fund it. You don't necessarily have the resources for graphic design, though you may fund it. Whether you have the marketing background and resources to actually get your your book out to a broad yeah. number of readers and then have some kind of an impact because I've often well we had this discussion the other week I think about you know small presses and when an important and interesting book comes out in an edition of 300 copies right how can it hope to influence the field and be part of the dialogue of the field when only a tiny group of people get to ever see it well similarly if you produce a book and maybe, maybe not Kickstarter is more prone to this, or Kickstarter-type projects, mm-hmm. that only goes to the group of people who responded to the Kickstarter um, appeal, you never get into the dialogue, you never get a broader audience than that. Your book you know, is barely read, never makes bookshelves, and then disappears. Yeah, and, and, and the only difference between that and any other self-published book is that you've raised money to pay some contributors some money. I mean, it's very easy to conceive of a way, and I don't look no, at No, 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 no. I'm going to stop you right there. No, no, no. I'm going I'm, I'm okay. to quibble. It's not at all like any self-funded book, I don't think. Okay, explain why. Because, well, for a start, you're not funding it yourself. You are getting, you're okay, pre-selling your product to an audience. Right. Which, it, it, it actually... Maybe I'm just quibbling over something which would irk me you know, if I came across it myself. Um, self-funding becomes a lot like self-publishing, and that still has a kind of stigma, though less of a stigma than it used to. I think that when anybody who's got you know interest, energy, and a set of skills goes out and sells those to a potential readership, that's, that's quite different from self-publishing. Well, it is, uh, it's, but it, it, but you didn't let me finish my thought. Okay, sorry. Self-publishing an anthology essentially means it's it's it's, it's in in a sense Kickstarter is a subscription service. Mm-hmm. If you fund me now, you will get something later. You will become yeah. part of this. And Kickstarter raises enough money, let's say for an anthology, that the anthologist can afford to pay contributors. So at that point, it becomes at least from a financial proposition a real anthology. Mm-hmm. Whether that later works its way into the marketplace and sells copies. Is another question because arguably um, the Kickstarter could break even by simply selling copies or, or or download keys or whatever to the original subscribers. Yeah. Um, in other words, it could be completely a vanity project. Sure. Uh, it could be a project that, uh, again, could make false promises. There are a lot of people who think I would like to see stories about that. Yeah. I would like to see, uh, I would like to see an Ursula K. Le Guin story about Agents of Shield. <laughs> which I don't think is going to happen, but if you can deliver that, I would send you some money. In advance. I will totally I kickstart that. If you can get Ursula right. to agree to that, I'm, I'm, I'll kick in twenty-five bucks or thirty bucks happily. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly true. I think to say that a well-organized and well-funded Kickstarter, like say, Ellen Datlow's, you know, yeah. if they only ever fulfill the six hundred and fifty or whatever it was, uh backer packages that they have to they would have made made a profit mm-hmm. uh, i know that they're incentive they're, they're actually going to go to print thousands of copies of it and put it out in bookstores and all that kind of thing but that's because that in that instance you have actually quite an interesting should we say um partnership between ellen and an existing press 
Right, exactly. And the fact that an existing press is involved is very significant to that because even if you can see an anthology, let's say it's an ebook only anthology and it goes out to uh, the founders on Kickstarter and a few other people, I don't think people, if, even if you might find pleasing stories about it, people want to read stories that are going to get discussed, that are going to be anthologized, that are going to get nominated for awards and so forth. And uh, a story which you've basically paid for, there's a there's a famous story about um, Anais Nin, the writer, the uh, important early 20th century writer, who was not known really for erotica, but she was, and she was hired by a wealthy man in Paris, I think a friend of Henry Miller's, to write pornography. Just really, I don't, I've, I've read some of it and I've forgotten it. I'm sorry, I'm old. But for a dollar a page, I mean, in a way, Kickstarter is like that guy saying, I will pay this famous writer to a dollar a page to write me some hot stuff. Yeah. Um, and it may be that that stuff, when Anais Neen was writing it, she was thinking, this is never going to go beyond this guy, so why not do it? Um, does that constitute literature if it's read by an audience of its uh, limited number of patrons? Of course it, co it constitutes literature. It's just it's whether mm -hmm. it co uh, constitutes part of, part of a broader dialogue you know, is, is the issue That's a broader correct. cultural dialogue? You know, mm -hmm. um, a, a work read by a single person, read only by the author, can still be literature. Um, you know, that's a different thing. Well, okay, but it, part of the dialogue, part of the part of the dialogue is what no, I think. No, yeah. I, I think you, you know, you can't be part of the culture without being read. Well, you can if if, if your stuff is eventually read. I mean. It's it's interesting to think that um, well let's say Emily Dickinson who basically published a handful of poems at best if that many during her lifetime mm -hmm. now one of the really at least one of the half dozen great American poets if not one of the two or three great American poets uh, I don't think that science fiction has an Emily Dickinson uh, I don't think that science fiction could afford to have an Emily Dickinson science fiction is not poetry science fiction lives in a marketplace yeah it does. And so, I mean, I guess to sort of try to pull back to the, the the actual core question, has it changed the anthology market? Yes. It's come at a time when the anthology market was on an economic downswing. Mm -hmm. I think that it's actually made it more fragile rather than more robust. I think it's made it more fragile by putting out a lot of product that is soaking up minimal anthology dollars. And so Which the is kind of like the, the Roger yeah. Elwood problem yeah. you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And so that means that I think there's probably a, a, less money on average available to each book, which is not in, in, you know, immediately a bad thing as long as the, the quality of the books is there. I think it's made it a tougher market, a scrappier market. Mm. Uh, I, I think it may well have put a, a downward pressure on the pay rates for authors. Hmm. Um, it could be. Though I would have to think about why I feel that. I'm not really sure. Certainly we seem to be pinging on the idea that five cents a word is a professional rate right at a time when I saw the anthology market beginning to move away that, from that and seeing that as a, as a, a low rate. You know, I yeah. just, just a year or two ago when I was doing uh, Eclipse 4 and that paid something like that, I was starting to get writers saying, that's too little money to write for. Uh, and now I see that that's the kind of rate that's being quite often linked to 
Kickstarter books. So, you know. I don't know. And I, I don't know what kind of rights are locked up if you write a book for a Kickstarter project. I don't know all the kind I would have to say that, that. I'm going to go out on a limb and say whatever ones you happen to sell and they happen to ask for, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that comes down to how credulous the author is and how what brought a what brought a spectrum of rights the Kickstarter company or group or individual feels like they need or want and can use. Uh, you would think at least probably world print and ebook would be my guess, but I don't know. Hmm. So I yeah. guess the other question related to that is whether Kickstarter and and various um, because I'm always interested in looking at historical. Uh, uh, I'm not, what's the word, antecedents of, of what we now think is a new invention. I mean, in a, in a sense, uh, various fanzines in the 30s and 40s and 50s published fiction occasionally. Bradbury published his early fiction in, in his own fanzine. And to some extent, those were all self-funded publishing ventures. Mm-hmm. And early small press uh, publications in science fiction, a fantasy press that was published by yes. William Crawford, even Arkham House uh, by Derelith and, and Wandery, were... You know, had they existed today, might have started as Kickstarter projects. Yes, I, I mean, Arkham that. House began uh, by essentially trusting that Lovecraft had developed enough fans uh, by that time that they could print a few hundred copies of The Outsider and others and sell it. Yeah. And and that that subsequently uh, more or less steamrolled. That may be too large a, a, a metaphor for it. Into what was probably the first successful small press in science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Uh, so, it, it, But that's a very special area. Somebody wanted to keep H.P. Lovecraft alive. Derelith wanted to keep Lovecraft in print. And it worked in that case. Yes. Uh, is that that much different from what people are trying to do with Kickstarter? Or do you think Kickstarter is largely represented by the Roger Elwood? Here's a kind of, let's, let's do... Let's I don't know. Do a, there's, there's a real whimsical element to Kickstarter, in my opinion. Well, there can be. You know... Uh, most of them seem pretty whimsical to me. And mm. a lot of them seem to be floating on what I would think to be non-viable uh, anthology ideas. Honestly, most of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Not all be. of them, but most of them. That's my own feeling. Um, okay, other questions? Uh, but, just, quickly, just to answer that question, though, the answer is that Kickstarter reaches out to a lot more people than were ever available to those early individuals. I think that's true, but I think that in terms of economies of scale, Kickstarter probably does not reach a significantly larger proportion. The literary Kickstarters, which I'm talking about, which is a very narrow sliver of the Kickstarter world, uh, may not reach out to a larger proportion of the readership than an ad in Weird Tales would have reached out to the readership in 1939. It's hard to figure out. It's just hard to figure out what the economies are involved uh, there. Yeah, I, I just want to add while we're talking about Kickstarters and Kickstarter anthologies, uh, on the side, so- the, on the the solid side of the co- the column, along you know, of high quality or likely to be high quality Kickstarter anthologies, having talked about briefly, you know, Ellen Datlow's um, right book, and having talked about or mentioned Glitter and Mayhem in passing, I should say that yep. friend of this podcast, Elisa Krasenstein, is currently doing a possible, which is the Australian or non-US version of Kickstarter. A campaign for a book called Kaleidoscope, a anthology of diverse YA fantasy that's currently about 50% funded. Okay. So, you know, if you support diversity in fantasy and science fiction, go have a look at that uh, at either 12planetpress.com or possible.com and search for Kaleidoscope. So, yeah. 
Well, good luck. Good luck to that. But I, yes. my, 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 my footnote to that is 12th Planet Press is a very interesting press. Yes. They do very interesting books. Yes. They have a track record. They have they have a World Fantasy Award, don't they? Doesn't everybody, Gary? Oh, yeah. I forgot. They just hand those out all the time. That's my, uh, But the point, point is, Elisa has a lot of credibility. Ellen Dadlow has credibility. If you did, J.J. Yes. Adams has credibility. Sure. And if you did a Kickstarter, you'd have credibility. I'm saying, you know, let's uh, any anybody out of his back pocket, and we're we're always using Roger Elwood as a whipping boy, and we do that because that's he should Marty be used as a whipping boy. <laughs> he deserved it. Yeah. Uh, but by and large, yeah, somebody saying, okay, I would like to have an anthology of stories about, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, zombie puppies from Regular Four. And they could probably get enough people thinking, it'd be cool to look at some stories like that. And I can see a lot of those Kickstarter projects never being seen beyond the initial list of subscribers or supporters. Yeah. I, and just disappearing from the world entirely. Yes. Now, I guess you And those have no impact on the anthology market whatsoever. No. No, I think that's true. And I guess you could argue maybe some of them, maybe, maybe it's a mercy that if they're going to happen that they disappear. To, you know, sort of. On the other hand, hey, right. puppies of terror, what's wrong with that? Uh, nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, I think people should be allowed to do that, whatever they want to. Okay. I think people, if they want to go out and buy Thomas Kincaid paintings of small towns with glowing windows and snowstorms and puppies out on the lawn, they should be allowed to do that. They just shouldn't allow the. They shouldn't bring them to to me into my house to just expect them. Whatever. Uh, and then one final question comes in from mm -hmm. the energetic Fred Kish. Uh huh. Who says, make a pitch about a Greg Egan short story collection. I assume this would be a best of. Maybe a publisher who listens to the show will commit, he, says, he suggests. Um, I, I'm not sure that's entirely a realistic assessment of how publishing works, but we can give it a go or, you know, we, we've well, got 10 minutes less no, left. I think, I think it's an interesting point. And I, I have one other forgotten writer I want to bring up. Before we go, you uh, my, my point about this, and we can put a couple of plugs in. Greg Egan has a new short story on his website. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Our good friend Karen Egan has the first study no. of Karen. No, 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 she doesn't. Karen Burnham. Karen Burnham. What do they say? Karen Egan. Okay, I'm putting down the wine now. <laughs> good man. Karen, Karen Burnham has a study coming out from the U University of Illinois, which will be the first book-length academic study of Greg Egan. And I read that book. I read her book. Yes. And it reminded me of something I had forgotten almost, which is that Greg Egan's short stories, by and large, are far more accessible than his novels have been. Yeah. And I think people overlook that. There are some very humane short stories. There are short, short stories that deal with psychological issues, with, uh, with, with uh, issues of refugees, which he's very concerned about. Um, so the, the idea, I think what happened to Greg Egan... Uh, in terms of his reputation, is that he was uncompromising in his hard SF, hard mathematics, conceptual basis of his fiction. Mm -hmm. And it started out very inviting. I still think Permutation City was one of the more exciting novels of its era. Yep. And it's still the best novel on that particular topic of being software, of living uh, as software. Yep. And his novels became more and more experimental, more abstruse. They're not hard to read. They're not as hard to read as people think they are. Yeah. They're hard to understand. That's a separate question. But his short fiction shows, it seems to me, 
a much wider variety and a much more accessible and a much more humane version of vegan than people believe is out there. I don't know that I concur about humane. I'm not sure that mm. I, I concur about that. Uh, I say that not having read orthogonal, which he's just coming up on completing. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly when I look back at the novels uh, early in his career, Quarantine, Permutation City, Distress, Diaspora, Terranesia, mm -hmm. they all had you know, a, reasonable, a reasonable humane uh, element and were quite accessible. It's unfortunate that they're, I think, largely, certainly in the United States, out of print. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, a, a, a sad thing. Well, you know, I know that uh, he had shifted over to Nightshade with Incandescence in the U.S. Right. Uh, and I'm not sure where. You know, I think uh, if you'd look, Shield's Ladder is out of print as well. I think Distress may be out of print. You know, is out of print in the U.S. So there's a lot of. I mean, I would have thought first of all, a savvy publisher could do a very worthwhile omnibus of his novels for the U.S. Yeah. But to make the case for Greg Egan, a best of Greg Egan, which I once upon a time wanted to publish, mm. and which I wanted to call worthless, the best of the best of Greg Egan, 1985 to 2005 at the time, because I felt that worthless was the absolute best, most awesome title for the book, but nobody in the universe ever agreed with me. No one would. That's an insane title. It's a fantastic title. It's a brilliant title, but it's completely insane. It is so brilliant, I got, uh, and Match is one of his great stories, but here, here's my pitch yeah. for why, first of, okay, why a Best of Greg Egan should exist, which is not the same as a, a publisher's pitch, Fred, because a publisher's pitch would have to talk to where's the, the money going to come from, okay? Well, yeah. So, part one of the pitch goes like this. Greg Egan has been writing science fiction for 30 years. He started out writing horror and moved on to writing some of the most innovative, mm. important short science fiction that we've seen. The, the uh, group of short stories that came out between about 1990 and 1995 represent one of the single most important flourishings of sh a short fiction career that we've ever seen. That stands alongside Larry Niven's uh, you know, push into the field in, in the, 60 oh, yeah, in the 60s, alongside uh, John Varley's in the 70s, which were incredibly, obviously dynamic careers starting, whatever may have happened to them later on. Uh, it would probably stand alongside anything that happened in the, the 60s with Le Guin and Wolf as well. Uh, he represents th the most intense expression of sense of wonder while also balancing it against a really, really intense uh, consideration and discussion of what uh, science, how science impacts on our lives. His stories, particularly, I think, what Learning to Be Me and Reasons to Be Cheerful are... Absolutely. Two of the absolute greatest, most important uh, stories that have appeared in the field. He managed to actually yeah, go on and grow story. as a writer. I mean, Wang's mm -hmm. Carpets, which is the story that won the Hugo Forum in 1999, if I recall correctly, although I may be off, but I think it, that was it. Mm. That was Oceanic. Oceanic won, won the Hugo in 1999. Okay. Now, Oceanic, which is a, fa a fantastic story, it feels like it should have been a novel, is him becoming really quite a humane writer. That, that's where you really see that. The, the, that humanity coming into short fiction very strongly as he pushed into uh, expressing different things in what he was doing. Now, when you look at this this body of work and its need to be collected, to be put together alongside, uh, you know, say, the Cordwain and Smith anthology you're talking about, yeah, alongside right. the Best of Larry Niven book that I did, alongside the John uh, Varley treasury that came out from uh, Ace some years ago, it's an absolutely essential book. And if you look at through, particularly in the U.S. market where this might appear, uh, his 
uh, his major early short story collections, Axiomatic, Luminous, they're out of print yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, that's astonishing. So there's a chance to put together a balanced, coherent picture of this incredibly important writer and allow his work to speak for itself and be held together in a way that it currently isn't. I, I, would, I don't have a number on how many stories he's written over the years. I would imagine somewhere mm -hmm. around 50 or 60. And I would have thought that a 20-story book would would really synopsize him beautifully. I, I think it's a book that really should happen. I would love to see it happen. I'd love to work on it, you know. I guess one of the questions I have about uh, – I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think that, uh, you know, a kind of omnibus volume like that would give people a sort of perspective and, and – and, in a weird way, almost a tutorial in, 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 in how to read his fiction, because uh, I didn't mean to suggest, obviously, that uh, his early novels lacked the humane elements. As a matter of fact, I think that the first two novels in the orthogonal series are extremely humane, but you have to approach that humanity within the context of an altered physics, which you need to understand from the ground up. I guess the question I have, because I remember I was writing for Locus, I don't think... Quite when quarantine came out, but certainly when Permutation City came out. Yeah. And I'm and my 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 recollection of reading Permutation City is that, okay, this is the new neuromancer. This is a novel that ought to change science fiction. This is a novel that other people are going to imitate. They're going to do different versions mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of, of literally the permutations of consciousness that are at the core of the novel's conception. And it seemed for a while that people were doing that. Yeah. Um, and how can a writer so profoundly influential and startling and brilliant um, fade into being out of print? Because, it's, well, there, there are a number of reasons, but I'd suggest the one is that his work isn't immediately accessible. Uh, I mean, when a we lot of it is, though. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah but what, well, look at us. We've been talking about the field now for 170 or 180 hours, Gary. Well, yeah. And we've talked about Greg Egan a number of times, and the most common example that we bring him up for is to discuss him as a writer who puts an entrance exam at the front of his work. Yes, we've used that phrase, and by the way, I should mention we've been quoted by certain people of using that phrase. So. Have we? In a negative, in a negative way? I stand by it. In a negative way? Mm -hmm. In a negative sense? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's Karen has done it in her book about Greg Egan, and and I, I stand by the idea of the entrance exam because Greg Egan has virtually said the same thing. If you don't, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with a pencil and paper next to you and doing the equations while you're reading, then maybe you shouldn't be reading it. Yeah, um, and and the new I story that, that you, yeah. sorry, go ahead. The new story that you you referred to on his website has half a dozen or so diagrams in it. And there are mm -hmm. those of us who may not be immediately comfortable with fiction that requires diagrams. I think that's part of the problem. I think there's a uh, there's a kind of hardest there's a kind of uncompromising nature to Greg Egan's fiction. That's true. Which you absolutely have to admire in terms yes. of intellectual rigor. Uh, you think, okay, he is not going to popularize this, but on the other hand, he does. On the other hand, one of the ironies about um, the first novel in the orthogonal trilogy, at least, The Clockwork Rocket, is that um, it really is one of the better portrayals of a problem a woman has in any scientific establishment yep. of gaining credibility and gaining autonomy. Yes. Uh, it's not marketed that way. It's not necessary for her to use, for him to use this yep. point of view. Uh, but it's, it's an extremely humane and um, convincing uh, 
portrait, even though the science is imaginary, the world is imaginary, the physics of the world is imaginary. But when he talks about human issues, he's very, that's why, that's why I go back to the term humane, he's very insightful, very sharp, and, um, and, and very uh, psychologically astute. Yes. Uh, I think the problem is that his, his reputation has been exactly that. Well, you can't, you can't get through this story unless you can do quadratic equations and advanced calculus and various other things. And that does not encourage readers to try it out. Yeah. No, it doesn't, I guess. Uh, and, and it's a pity because, I mean, if you look at his newest story, which isn't the one on the website, his mm-hmm. newest story is in the new uh, technology review anthology, 12 Tomorrows, a story called Zero for Conduct. Uh-huh. And Zero for Conduct is one of the best stories of the year easily. I think it's remarkable that after 30 years, he's still putting out stories that can be rated as you know, amongst the best of the year. And uh-huh. it talks directly to gender issues, race issues. It talks to uh, the impact of science on our day-to-day lives. It's as contemporary and fresh as anything out there. You know, it's really quite a remarkable story and a remarkable achievement that he's still producing work like that. And it is probably amongst the more successful of his stories to move towards this expression of character and impact on people's lives over the description of you know complex and possibly ab- abstruse technology you know it's quite brilliantly done as much as things are i'm just out of curiosity is that title because i've not seen the story but the title is obviously the title of a famous 1930s jean vigo film about a revolt at a, at a boys school i believe kind of early dystopian thing does he allude to that in any way because the title certainly echoes that I don't know. I know that given the, uh, the fact that he studied film, he would he may well be aware of the film, mm. but I'm, I'm not aware of it. So if he studied film, that he's completely aware of it. Yeah. I mean, what, that's one of the other things, which is interesting. There, there, There's a now another zombie revolution going out on the streets. I'm sorry, but the police will take care of it. Um, the thing that strikes me about Egan, and it's shown up more than once in his fiction, and it shows up in the fiction of other writers who are thought of as just absolutely ruthlessly hard SF writers, including Gregory Benford and Joe Haldeman, is that he is fascinated by arts. Yeah. He's fascinated by how the arts work. He's fascinated about how the emotional effects are achieved by the arts. Um, and I think that's something else which is uh, a topic of another podcast entirely, which yeah. is how science fiction deals with creativity and with art and that sort of thing. And the fact that a lot of writers... Uh, I mean, everybody thinks of Joe Haldeman in terms of wartime science fiction. Everybody thinks of Greg Egan in terms of information theory science fiction. Everybody mm-hmm. thinks of Gregory Benford in terms of deep astronomy science fiction. All of them have written very insightful and fascinating stories based on the ideas behind artistic creation. Yes. Yes, they have. I don't mean like that, but yes, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's just this, it's, it's, it's one of the things that... Um, I know that there have been very few – this is another topic, as I said, we could go into next week. Yep. There was a Robert Conquest anthology uh, decades ago about science fiction about art. Uh, and by art, I don't mean simply painting. I don't mean a rose for Ecclesiastes and this. But it includes that. It includes art, music, literature, theater, dance, Spider, Rob, Spider and Gene Robinson. There's a whole tradition out there which never seems to have cohered, and yet people that you don't necessarily suspect – to write about the arts have done it. There's a piece um, which is in David Hartwell's Year's Best SF um, uh, by Gregory Benford, called I think it's called the Sigma Symphonies or something like that, which deals with ET, um, S-E-T-I, you know, signals, 
being sort of rearranged into a musical structure. And it's kind of fascinating, and it's interesting, and it suggests to me that um, there is a kind of link between really hard SF and artistic creation, which nobody has really talked about or noticed. Yeah. Yes, I think you're right. Maybe it is a topic for a future podcast. But we're at the end of this one, Gary. We're at the end of this one already? Yes. Fred doesn't have anything else to talk about? Well, even if he did, it's probably time for us to wind up. And, and this, this podcast will, will go out to air. Gary, whilst we are on the road, we will be in London when this we'll be episode in London, goes out. Later in Brighton and that sort of thing. It sounds like um, I think we'll have a lot of fun. We I hope to we be should. talking to people over there who will be on our podcast. We, we do. But until next time when, well, dear listeners, you will all be together listening to us talk to you, answering questions from Guy and Fred and, and Michael. We will be enjoying one another's company directly. We will be having a good time. We will be touristing. We will be up the London Eye and we'll be in a pub and we'll be, yes, doing all those things you do when you're touristing. We're doing all the world. things that people do when they're there. Absolutely. With Ellen Clay, just also of this parish. So fun will be had. Okay. Okay. We will talk Until to then, everybody soon. We'll see you then. Bye. Good night.